the name of our church, Risen King, should serve as a reminder of who we belong to, whom we belong to, if that's important to you, uh, whom we are here for, and why this is the case. So we are the people of Jesus Christ. Amen? Yes. We are here to worship him and learn of him together. That's why we have gathered. This is the case because Jesus is the Son of God who lived, died, and was raised from the dead for us and for our salvation. He is the one who rules over all things by his powerful word. From galaxies to molecules, Christ's, Christ sovereignly rules over everything. And though we do not yet see his rule visibly over all creation, especially uh, as sinful humanity foolishly rejects that rule. We, the church, we gladly submit ourselves to it as a present reality, like Philippians 2, right? One day every knee will bow, but we, we recognize that we bow now. Like we look forward to that bowing. Christ is supreme over all things, and he must be exalted in his church, universal, and in his churches, of which we are a part. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul is continuing to instruct Timothy on how to lead God's household, the church, in a way that exalts Christ, in a way that demonstrates that it is not Paul's, it's not Timothy's, but it's God's. Part of leading faithfully includes elders interacting with other elders. And how is, a, how is a church, including its elders, supposed to treat or interact with its elders? Right? All sorts of different relationships that are being covered here. And, and one includes elders interacting with elders and the church interacting with elders. So how is a church or how does a Christ-exalting church treat its elders? And we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25 today uh, to help us answer that question. I, hope, I trust you have your copy of God's Word open and uh, follow along as I read, please. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. How does a Christ-exalting church treat its elders? Four points I see through this to answer this question. A Christ-exalting church honors its elders 
protects its elders, rebukes its elders, and ordains its elders carefully. Honors, protects, rebukes, and ordains carefully. We'll take these one by one. So if you didn't write them down, that's fine. You'll see them. You'll see each point again. First, a Christ-exalting church honors its elders. Elders, uh, word used here at the beginning of verse 17, is referring to the same group as, as was referred individually as overseers back in chapter 3. And if you recall from that sermon, we, we mentioned different uh, titles and responsibilities that uh, those who lead Christ's church criteria, right, qualifications, we've talked about all of those things, but uh, elders are overseers, are pastors, they just don't use that term very often throughout scripture, and I'll zero in on elders. Uh, but elders, the same group as has been talked about here, uh, are to rule well. We addressed this a little bit uh, from chapter 2 about this exercising authority over the church, authority that belongs to who, ultimately? The authority over the church is whose? Christ's, right? It is Christ's authority. Christ's authority uh, recorded in his word, this is how it's supposed to be done. That authority then delegated by Christ through his word, through his body, to qualified men to lead or here, to rule well his church. Authority that must be executed according to God's word. So it's not just the elders being like, here's what I think. But it's the elders looking at God's word and saying, here's what Christ says, and we must lead and rule the church according to this. Uh, That can be done poorly, right? Or unfaithfully, or it can be done well, and faithful elders are to serve well in this and to rule well, to exercise authority well. It's interesting we see a distinction even here uh, in First Timothy between responsibilities of elders, and not every elder, we talked about this too, right? A plurality and a sharing of gifts and responsibilities is sort of a natural outflow of those type of things and actually allows for a, a more well-rounded leadership. And so a difference A sharing of responsibilities, but a difference of responsibilities is seen here uh, in the responsibilities given to elders. And so we see elders as those who who rule, and then he mentions especially those, as in there's a subset of elders, right? Elders, and then those, some inside of that, who labor in preaching and teaching. Elders who rule well, and I'm not going to dive in aspects to that because I'm going to try to take kind of what Paul's saying, just run to his point. Elders who rule well, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, are to be considered worthy of, as he says, worthy of double honor. And not just considered worthy, but actually treated as such, treated with this double honor. And double honor here likely refers to first kind of what we would think of as the first honor, just high esteem or respect, that's addressed other places in scripture too, honor them for the office that they are faithfully um, administering. And then secondly, it's likely that the second, the double aspect of the honor is actually financial support. And so especially those who labor uh, in preaching and teaching, but we, they need to be worthy of this double honor. And then he really centers in, we'd be like, well, where did you get that from? That sounds convenient for the paid elder to talk about. Uh, and it certainly is an ironic text, but it's just the next one that came out. It's really ironic because if you recall, next week is our budget meeting. Uh, one of the things that's discussed in the budget is my own salary. So if there's a text that could be avoided, it wouldn't be like, let's not talk about a hard theological topic. It's 
I don't want to be the one talking about, hey, make sure you pay your preacher. It's weird, but it's the text, providential timing, let's just move forward. It's, it's the Lord speaking. We all submit to that. Anyway, Paul is talking about financial compensation for elders, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And we see that from these quotations that he has. What quotations? Uh, He says, for the scripture says, and then we have two quotes. The first is actually from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse four. Uh, If Paul had been like, Peter, you're a cow, I would have been like, I don't appreciate that. But in this context, it's good. The quote is uh, from Deuteronomy 25, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Therefore, pay your (laughs) pastors. Okay, Uh, we'll come back to that in a minute. Then there's the second quotation, the laborer deserves his wages. That's from Luke chapter 10, verse 7, a quotation that Jesus himself made, not something that's found in the Old Testament. And some would say that he's only saying, applying scripture to the Deuteronomy and then just making another quote. I don't think that that's necessary for us to do, uh, because there's some who would say, well, scripture in the New Testament can't talk about other books in the New Testament as being scripture. Uh, But that's not necessary. I actually would say that it's valuable for Paul, who is an associate of Luke, who wrote that passage, to recognize the fact that this was an inspired work that was being put together uh, according to God's will, right, by the Holy Spirit for the glory of Christ in his church. And in other places in the New Testament, you see both the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament Uh, referred to as these writings, these sacred writings, or even scripture, that's what scripture means, it means writings, uh, as part of scripture, as like Peter talks about Paul's writings, as well, a compare saying, as with the other scriptures, right, bringing that together in that. So I love that aspect of this, uh, that we see New Testament quotations as scripture in the New Testament. And we see those authoritative things here. And so Paul uses that, the laborer deserves his wages, what he mentions only briefly here, Paul elaborates on far more in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, he's talking about ministers of the gospel being financially supported, and he actually does that in the context of that's, they deserve that. even says, I deserve that, but then Paul also makes a ministry point that, that he willingly refuses that and kind of goes into reason why. Uh, even though he personally declined that support, he knows that he deserved it, And here's his argument, a little bit of a lengthier quote from 1 Corinthians 9. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we, like Paul and his ministry team, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, another name for Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, quote, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap 
material things from you. And he summarizes this in verse 14 of chapter 9. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. It is a quick illustration of what, what exactly is this whole ox thing talking about, right? When it's threshing out the corn and working diligently, like not to cover its mouth so that it can't eat. Like it's supposed to be able to have snacks uh, from the grain that it's threshing out. Now, you don't just starve the worker in the midst of the work. Right? And it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God so cares for oxen, how much more would he care for those who are working in his harvest field? to be able to enjoy material benefits from those that are spiritually benefited from them. So I already mentioned just the irony uh, that the Lord brings us together at this time, a bit of discomfort in in addressing this, although it's God's word, I'm not ashamed of it. It just seems strange for me to be able to do that, but allow me to say this. As the elder here, I'm not the only elder, but I'm the only elder here at Risen King Church tasked with preaching. I'm also the only one uh, who receives financial support from a, in a full-time capacity for uh, this ministry. I'm so thankful you, you provide so generously for us. Uh, we're, we, we, lack, we lack nothing. So many pastors around the world, around our area, have to serve bivocationally, uh, but I do not. I get to give of all of my time to, to serve, uh, to prepare for, for sermons and to lead other aspects of the ministry here. And I, I consider that the double honor that, I'm, that this text calls for. I, I feel that I've received that, uh, maybe even more than double. And, and, I, and so in looking at this text, I was reminded of what Paul said writing to the Philippian church in response to a financial gift that they had sent to him. And this is what he says. He says, not, not that I'm seeking the gift like it's not about the money, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied by your gifts, which are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. So uh, point one, check. Thank you uh, for those type of things. We're moving on to, as the text continues, a Christ-exalting church honors its elders. A Christ-exalting church also protects its elders. A Christ-exalting church protects its elders. The principle Paul states here in verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's also found in the Old Testament law, specifically in Deuteronomy 19, which writes this way. Moses says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Why? Well, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. If the witness is a false witness that has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and the rest shall hear and fear and never again Commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. See, God is concerned with uh, righteous 
judgment in all the world, especially among his people. And so one person having an, a vendetta and trying to, instead of dealing with it himself or certainly dealing with it properly, trying to have the courts, as it were, deal with that and execute his own vindictiveness against his enemy. God says that's, that's wrong, right? Don't allow that to happen. Uh, this isn't a unique biblical principle. The same principle is found in other ancient law codes as well. And as I said, the point is that accusations can be made out of a personal vendetta against an enemy, and that's not true justice. That's not righteous judgment. I think you can see from that and from other ancient law codes and other things that really, I think, probably just common sense, common grace, why and how our country established that policy of innocent until proven guilty, right? The, the presumption or the assumption of innocence. And sadly, we have strayed from this as a culture, as a society. Instead of guilt by proven accusation, we see guilt by association. And it fills our headlines, that it fills the social media feeds, it fills everything. It fills courtrooms themselves. Guilt by association instead of guilt by proven accusation. What does that look like? Someone is guilty because they are white. Someone is guilty because they are black. Someone is guilty because they are male. Someone is guilty because they are a police officer. Someone, and we could go on to a number of different lists. See, 21st century America is running at a fever pitch of guilt by association based on unsubstantiated evidence, tried, convicted, and executed, or popularly referred to as canceled, by the online court of public opinion. And it's wrong. So how do we respond to this? We must resist this tendency that's so prevalent in our culture, first, by not becoming guilty of it ourselves. Right, it's really easy to say like, oh, you know, some of those things would be like, oh yeah, people shouldn't say that we're guilty of that. Don't broad brush me into a category like those people over there always do. Like, do you see like how, how easily it can be to fall into what we condemn someone else for without recognizing our own blind spots? And so Christ responds to that, right? This is like, make sure you've gotten the log out of your eye before you address the speck in someone else. And there's relationship aspects in that. This certainly starts in the church, but that's the point, that it must start in the church. Well, they're so much wronger than I am. I know that's not good grammar. Like, and they may be, but like we've talked about in our class here today, it's just like, even if you have 2% of the wrong, right? You embrace 100% of your 2%, right? You admit your own faults, your own sins before the Lord and before others, before you start addressing critically those who have sinned against you. But we must not become guilty of this same uh, guilt by association rather than guilt by proven accusation. Man, we just hate the Twitter mob on the left. So you know what we need to do? We need to form Twitter mob on the right to go after them. Don't be part of the problem, right? That's not the solution. Don't lump people into groups to discredit them offhand. Don't accept one quote posted online as proof that someone should be written off as a heretic or a liberal. Interact with people as individuals. 
I also think it would be more beneficial for us to focus on interacting with individual people that we know rather than debating strangers on the internet. But maybe I'm straying too far from the text to go into that. But let's think about these things. We must not be guilty of denying true biblical justice. And we must not be influenced by those who deny or reject true biblical justice. We must allow God's principles of justice stated in scripture to guide how we treat our neighbors, which is, again, anyone that we would interact with, right? Who, who is my neighbor again? Who does this not apply to? Well, pick the one person in your mind that you don't want this to apply to, and that's exactly who it applies to, right? That's the point that Christ is making in that parable. So how we treat our neighbors guided by God's principles of justice in his word, and especially this must dictate our behavior, guide, dictate, influence our behavior with our spiritual family members in the church, and that includes elders. Christ-exalting church protects its elders. See, elders, a few caveats, elders are redeemed sinners in the process of being sanctified. Hopefully, as we talked about qualifications and calling to office, we've recognized that, right? If it's, if it's only those who are perfect, like if above reproach means sinless, then one qualifies, his name is Jesus. That's it. Right? If sinless perfection is required of an elder, then I, I must resign because I'm disqualified. But we talked about that that's not exactly what that means. Elders are redeemed sinners in the process of being sanctified, not sinless, not perfect. See, that's one factor, recognizing the, the need of sanctification in elders. And there's another factor in kind of considering this text. The shepherding work of elders, while it should be based out of Scripture, not should, must, be based out of scripture, but that shepherding work is still subjective in some sense. Right? We take principles, we learn aspects of that, and we do our best to prayerfully and among each other to say how, which principle applies to this particular scenario, to this particular need, to this particular question that we need to answer. Right? So there's a subjective element of that. Maybe you agree, maybe you don't agree, Maybe you're right, maybe you're not right. Maybe we're both wrong, right? But seeking to try to do that in a way that it's faithful results in unpopular decisions, right? Imperfect human beings prayerfully seeking to answer difficult questions according to God's word results in disagreements, results in people that are, that are unhappy and, and disagree strongly. And being sanctified elders, seeking to make difficult decisions that turn out to be unpopular means that elders are also susceptible to false accusations. False accusations that could come from malice, right? I'm, I'm, I'm hurt, I'm bitter about this, and so I'm going to look for something that I can uh, skew accord about that elder to get him removed from office, right? Are we, are we so naive as to think that that would never take place? Not saying like it'll take place here or it is, but are we so naive as to think that that would not happen in the church? Are we all naturally good people? No, <laughs> right? But that's not every accusation comes from that. It's not like if you make an accusation against an elder, you're, you're conniving and scheming, right? But false accusations could also come from a misunderstanding or from a disagreement. 
Therefore, to maintain righteousness and judgment, multiple witnesses are required because difficult situations and false accusations are possible. This principle requiring multiple witnesses to verify an accusation, like I said, it's not unique to Christianity, and it does not apply uniquely to elders. Like, you could look at this and be like, oh, we're supposed to give them more of a benefit of the doubt, right? Like, you can accept an accusation against, like, a normal Christian, but elders get, you got to give them a little bit more rope. But that's not what's happening here. I don't think it's, like, treat elders special. I think it's don't exempt them from this protection. They are held to a higher standard, but you also are to give all believers the same sort of, maybe we could say, benefit of the doubt allowing for accusations to be proven properly. Paul is not, Paul is a church leader, right? He's not saying, hey, everybody make sure that you treat other church leaders, you know, including me, with special privilege. See, that, that has happened. That can happen. It does happen. When that happens, that's wrong. Like, oh, well, he's an elder, so we'll just let that pass. It's not what Paul's saying. Not principles of, of God's biblical perfect, righteous justice, right? To just give special treatment and allow a pass. And Paul is going to address that tendency in verse 21. He's not providing a special privilege for elders. He's insisting that elders be included in the same principles as everybody else, not exempt from that. A Christ-exalting church protects its elders. So let me ask you, how easily do you accept an accusation as true? About anybody and specifically about elders. How quickly do you accept an accusation as true? In your mind, are people proven, are people innocent until proven guilty or guilty until proven innocent? How eagerly will you accept gossip as truth? Does your treatment of others align with the teachings of scripture like love thinks no evil? or look after the interests of others, considering them as more significant than yourself? Are you predisposed to automatically assume the truth of an accusation before it's proven, especially against church leaders? A Christ-exalting church protects its elders because not all accusations raised against elders are true, but some of them are. Not all accusations are true. They need to be proven, but some of them are true. Then what? And in those cases, a Christ-exalting church rebukes its elders. Protecting elders does not mean covering up their sin or excusing it away. Never how God instructs us to, to treat things, and there are examples that abound of that as well. It is a reality that elders can and do sin. And not every sin committed by an elder is to be publicly addressed and rebuked like Paul is commanding here. If every sin committed by an elder throughout the week had to be addressed publicly, I mean, would we have time for anything else in our gathering? It's like Fred would just come up. It's like, here's everything Peter did this week. And then have to do the same to him, to Jeremy, to Lowell, right? Just kind of go through that. Be like, I thought we were going to hear to talk about Jesus. Now, that's not what he's talking about here. Not every sin, but sometimes the sins of elders affect the church body as a whole. And in doing so, they, ref- they, they affect the reputation of Christ. Some sins disqualify from leadership. 
These must be publicly rebuked. And when a sin is leadership or reputation related, it should be addressed this way, as he says, as for those who persist in sin, verse 20, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So when, when a sin is leadership or reputation related, needs to be addressed with this public rebuke. When an elder stubbornly persists in any kind of sin, persists in it with a refusal to repent, this also applies. And when this happens, elders are subject to church discipline like any other church member, but it is in a heightened sense. It's in a heightened sense because they are subject to public rebuke before the entire church. And yes, church discipline for any member can move toward that. It seems that it moves there more quickly when it comes to an elder. Why is this? Well, a public office is, a public rebuke, excuse me, is in keeping with a public office. Why should this be the case? And Paul gives a, a reason, gives a benefit of this. One benefit of the public rebuke of an elder in front of the whole church, that benefit is to the other elders, that they would wisely learn from the rebuked elder's sin. I was reminded of the Proverbs of that, right? Like a wise man learns more from the, the stripes against the fool than the fool would, right? Or even a, even, even a, a rebuke more than lashes to a, few, uh, to a fool. And so wise elders will learn and benefit from these type of things. And, and it's, how does he say this? Rebuke them, the sinning elder, in the presence of all, I would take that as the whole body, so that the rest, the rest of the elders, may stand in fear. And standing in fear of public rebuke before the church may sound harsh, or it may sound like Paul is encouraging some aspect of fear of man here. But that's not what he's saying. It's actually a means of God's disciplining grace, training all elders to shepherd faithfully and righteously. Anytime that I come across yet another story of an elder who failed in some way, shape, or form, whatever that might look like, and they receive a public rebuke. It should happen at their church. That's where it should start. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's swept under the rug and then it explodes. But whenever that happens, their reputation is smeared and Christ's reputation is smeared. I take stock of that. I take note because I, want, I don't want to be foolish. That's never going to happen to me. I want to be wise. I want to grow in humility. Just be like, that happened to that man? Like, who am I to think that that would not happen to me, right? That's the, that's the type of humility all of God's people should have, and especially elders. That's what he's talking about here. God trains us through the training of others. Learn gently so you don't have to learn harshly. In verse 21, Paul uses very strong language. Look at that. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. He's charging and you know, commanding, uh, insisting that Timothy keep and enforce these rules, specifically what he's talking about with elders here. And he reminds Timothy and all elders that would follow him that God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ and the entire elect or unfallen angelic host are all observing the life and workings of every individual church. 
And from this, we can't help but be reminded that as God watches, so God will call elders to account for that. Those who watch over your souls as those who will give an account, Hebrews 13 says. Elders will answer to the Lord for how the church is led and how elders are treated. Are the faithful honored? Are the innocent protected? Are the guilty rebuked? Each of these are questions that God is concerned with that elders will give an answer for. So, Fred, and Jeremy's not here with us today, but Fred, Jeremy, Lowell, Soon, Ken, and Gerald, as the elders of Risen King Church, we too have been charged with the responsibility to keep these rules. And everyone else, you have the responsibility to hold us accountable to lead biblically. All of us, all of this, especially the rebuking, must be done without prejudging, without partiality. As a Christ-exalting church rebukes its elders, and so we must remember and realize and keep in the forefront of our mind, no one, not even a dearly loved elder, is above the authority of Christ delegated to faithful elders over their church. Nobody in Christ's kingdom is exempt from his authority. No one gets a pass, regardless of how many good sermons they've preached or how many people they've counseled or how big the crowds that have gathered or how many years they've served. Nothing exempts an elder from the authority of Christ exercised by faithful elders in a local church. One author wrote, too often today, church leaders rule autocratically and are insufficiently accountable. In many cases, this is a ticking time bomb that will explode in due course, leaving destruction in its wake. And inside the last six months to a year to five years to 10 years, imagine all of us that are aware of anything that's happening in Christianity in the United States of America have seen examples of this. Names are in many of your minds right now. I don't ever want to be one of those names, by God's grace. A faithful elder will submit himself to faithful elders. And faithful elders will call to account and rebuke an unfaithful elder. See, a faithful elder will submit to faithful elders. And faithful elders will call to account and rebuke, even publicly, an unfaithful elder. I appreciate the fact, you, you could think like Paul is just like, yeah, that's, you know, look at somebody else. But he doesn't do that, right? He holds himself to the same standard and he demonstrates it actually being fleshed out. Both of these are in Galatians. And so you think, well, is Paul above this as an apostle, right? Are there certain elders or certain church leaders that are so significant that they get some sort of a pass? Paul says, absolutely not. Like in Galatians chapter one, we see Paul subjecting himself to examination and judgment when he writes, if anyone, even if we, even if me, Paul, who preached this, if anyone should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you, let him be accursed. Like, don't even just listen to me if I veer from God's word, Paul says. Then he demonstrates his willingness to confront the apostle Peter for failing up to live 
to the gospel. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul paints this picture for us. Now, when Cephas, again, that's just another name for Peter uh, from the gospels, when, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James in Jerusalem, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles, like Christ had commanded him to do in obedience to the gospel. But when they came, he drew back. He separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said, to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You can you imagine like the you know, church potluck in a couple weeks? We're standing there, we're just eating, everybody, not everybody's having a good time. Most people seem to be having a good time, wonderful fellowship, and all of a sudden Fred just stands up in front of everybody, hey, Peter, I rebuke you, Silence. It's like, but the gospel is that significant, and a faithful elder would do that. That is biblical faithfulness, because faithful elders are passionate about the purity of the gospel and about continuing to exalt Christ in Christ's church. See, Christ's reputation, God's word, those are of priceless value. I think any of us would disagree on that. They must be guarded. Christ's reputation. God's word, those are the things that we must value and guard, not one particular man's reputation in ministry. How many times in the last, what, decade, two decades, have we heard things about too big to fail? It's a corporation or an individual preacher, so valuable that we just, got, we just don't want to impact that legacy, right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> It can be too easy to look to particular people, individuals, as indispensable to the cause of the gospel, but that is profoundly unbiblical. Christ is indispensable to the gospel. Right? The Holy Spirit's work is indispensable. Elsewhere, Paul recognized that multiple Christians, multiple ministers of the gospel, play a part in the spread of the gospel, but none of them are the key. What did he say in 1 Corinthians again, addressing a lot of similar matters? He's like, you know, one plants and one waters. He's like, yeah, I, I planted, I did some work, then I left. Apollo stayed and he did some other work. Other people were involved in other ways. But, but none of that matters because if God had not given the increase, nothing would have happened. So the one who plants, nothing. The one who waters, nothing. God is the one who is at work in his church. I heard a great quote a few years ago, uh, and it's a great name, too, Count Zinzendorf. Like if you had a good accent or a good name, we would just we would go places. But again, it doesn't matter to go places. It's the gospel. He said this, the goal of gospel ministry, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Wow, thanks, Count von Zinzendorf. It's like, but, but shouldn't I be more important than that? No. No, you shouldn't. No particular sermon 
is really going to be of that much value from one particular preacher in your life, right? It's just the course of the word over time. And maybe the Lord uses something in particular. And you can point to something specific. You know, when he said this from this passage, that was a significant moment in my life. So I praise God, really, praise God. Don't praise the preacher because if the preacher was being faithful, then he was just explaining God's word to you. But don't let your faith be built on the reputation or ministry or legacy of one particular individual, living or dead, if it's not Christ and his word. We could say the preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. We could say it differently. As elders, we could, be, we could benefit from being reminded that our life's work is to serve faithfully and then identify our own replacements. Train them, call them up, ordain them, move forward. It's just a continued cycle. Paul said it to Timothy, didn't he? Right? It's like what you've learned from me, I want you to train, pass on to godly men who will be able to train others also. And this is the succession continues. And Paul is an excellent, Christ passed on his work to the apostles who passed it on to others. And Paul saw the fact that even if his reputation was being smeared by those in Philippi while he was in jail, even if they were preaching the gospel to get Paul in more trouble, which is just sick, but that's what was taking place. He's like, great, the gospel's being preached. What do I matter in this? You know, my work will not continue forever. Christ's work continues. My work shouldn't continue forever because this is not my church. This is not my gospel. This is not my kingdom. It's Christ's church. It's Christ's gospel. It's Christ's kingdom. And he alone must be exalted. John the Baptist said, right? He, Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. So if I sin, rebuke me. Because a Christ-exalting church rebukes its elders. Have you ever heard Ben Franklin's proverb, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure? Have you heard that? He had all sorts of pithy statements. A lot of wisdom there. You know, it may not be convenient to check your car's oil periodically, but it is more convenient than having a baseball-sized hole inside of your engine block and having to replace your engine or your entire car. Far too many details on that for that not to have been a real story. Replacing air filters in your HVAC unit is better than replacing your whole unit. And we could easily multiply examples here. Publicly rebuking sinning elders in front of the whole church would be a difficult, painful task for everyone involved, bringing shame on that man, his family, the church as a whole. Yet it is still the right and necessary course for a Christ-exalting church to take, regardless of how painful or shameful or difficult it is. However, far better than that pound of cure is an ounce of prevention perhaps years earlier. And so the last point of how a Christ-exalting church treats its elders actually falls first in the proper order of operations. Before honoring elders or protecting elders or rebuking elders, a Christ-exalting church ordains its elders carefully. A Christ-exalting church ordains its elders carefully. This is verses 22 to 25. Carefully evaluating potential elders over time 
rather than hastily appointing unqualified elders, untested, unproven elders. That's one guardrail against having to publicly rebuke an elder or even remove a disqualified elder from office. And to this end, Paul tells Timothy not to be hasty in the laying on of hands. This laying on of hands is ordination, setting a man apart for the ministry of elder or deacon that the Lord, the ministry that the Lord through his church has called for him to do. A hasty ordination would fail to carefully evaluate a candidate's qualifications or would neglect to ensure proper training for the office. These failures can result in significant sin and spiritual harm to that person, to his family, and to the body. The elders who acted in haste or with partiality now share in the guilt of the sin of that elder. Because of their laziness, because of their desire to rush ahead, because of their personal friendship with this particular man, they become responsible before the Lord for their fellow elder's sin along with him. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, That's what this don't take part in the sins of others has to do. It's not just don't participate in them yourself by by committing those sins. And it's also if you rush into this and point an unqualified elder without kind of due diligence on those type of things, then that sin, the guilt of that is his and becomes ours as elders. You know, along with the other ministry exhortations that Paul has given to Timothy, there are, I think, dozens in 1 Timothy. Paul here simply tells Timothy to keep himself pure. Don't be hasty or foolish in your ministry, even as it relates to elders bringing sin and guilt on yourself. So we've done our best to prayerfully you know, keep, peace, keep these men before you, to go through careful teaching of what this is to you and to them, and then to interview them to evaluate these things. We're not at the end of that process. It's not a given when somebody enters into an elder training and qualification period, right? It was real training and real evaluation. And before the Lord, we want our consciences to be cleared, to put qualified men, and not just so that we don't get mud on our face, but because it's the reputation of Christ and people's spiritual good that is at stake. As Paul goes on through here, looking at verse 23 specifically, you know, elder ministry is difficult. Uh, its pressures are significant. Mental, emotional, spiritual pressures, whether it's elder-related or not, they can often cause physical side effects. And it looks like that's what Timothy was experiencing. Yet perhaps he was trying to tough his way through it without benefiting from God's common grace found in physical remedies. With all the stuff that Paul went through, I wonder if he just felt like serving with him was like serving with the, the Energizer Bunny or something like that. You know, even with the, whatever the eyesores were from 2 Corinthians, I mean, the guy got stoned, crawled away, and then preached in the next city. I mean, that had to have been hard for, like, to follow that up as Timothy. I just, I, I can't imagine it. So, you know, Timothy maybe is like, ah, I need to be as whatever as Paul is. Little, some stomach ulcers, that's nothing. I could tough this out. And Paul says, don't be like that. There's common grace found from God in physical remedies. So here Paul mentions using some wine to ease digestion problems. No longer drink only water. Maybe that was asceticism. 
that he had already addressed. Maybe it was something else. He's like, use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. It's okay to not be perfectly strong. You are human. Take advantage of God's common grace, often found in physical remedies. So a little bit of wine for your stomach's sake. We could insert medicine aspects in that. We could also say, you know, I think it was D.A. Carson who said at one point, the godliest thing in battling depression, he said, the godliest thing sometimes that you could do is go sleep. Battling spiritual pressures, it's like you could stay up all night worrying, not going to accomplish something. As the Lord grants rest, receive that as a gift from him. And it talked about uh, recreation as well, a number of God's good gifts that are to refresh his people. If you notice, the ESV puts this in parentheses, verse 23. It seems to be a, a brief interruption in Paul's thought, but it's not unrelated. You know, this is, after all, a personal letter. Paul does not have to follow a perfectly crafted flow of thought throughout. Like, well, what did he put 23 in there for? Maybe that's not original. Maybe this isn't by Paul at all. Maybe, maybe we don't believe the Bible at all. <laughs> like, because we're not sure exactly how 23 relates to 22. Just scrap it, right? Like, no. Right? It's one human being writing to another human being, but yet under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that you have to be able to follow, we, any of us have to be able to perfectly follow every aspect of his train of thought. Not everything is as crafted of an argument as like the book of Hebrews. Paul's allowed to insert a personal comment here for his protege, Timothy. Verse 24, though, he seems to be returning to this idea from verse 22 of sharing in someone else's sin, you know, elders must not hastily ordain other elders. Instead, they need to take whatever time is necessary to carefully evaluate them. And this does require time. Why does it require time? Why can this not be done so quickly? And Paul answers this. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. In other words, certain sins by certain people are obvious. That's not the danger that Timothy needs to be warned about. The sins of others appear later. See, some sin will not be immediately apparent, but will reveal itself over time. And if you hastily ordain someone, you may not have given enough time for those things to reveal themselves. What is this person really like in relationship to money, in relationship to disputes, in relationship to their family? Are they truly above reproach? Even those sins that end up completely hidden overlooked by any other human being, you know, we can be confident that no sin escapes God's notice. All sin will be addressed and punished by the righteous judge of all the earth. You know, that includes your sin. This text is focusing a lot on elders, but the principles kind of will, will spread out to each of us. Whatever sin you think you've hidden so well, God knows about it. The one who confesses and forsakes finds mercy. Right? God resists the proud. God gives grace and mercy to those who will confess and repent. But all of your sin comes before that judge. All of it. Not just the stuff people know about, but the stuff that nobody knows about. The stuff that you wish you didn't know about. The things that you would like to forget. All sin comes before him. And so as a reminder, you have only two options when it comes to the sentencing 
and the punishment for your sin. Two options. One, endure the eternal punishment that you deserve on your own, which is an eternity suffering God's wrath in the lake of fire. Or two, receive the merciful offer of forgiveness by trusting in Jesus. Free and clear. Because the punishment was placed on him at the cross. Doesn't that just dovetail with the, the reading that we had earlier? Right? God demands satisfaction for sin. We can't do that, but we don't have to because Christ did. So if your sins are conspicuous or, or if they are hidden, confess them before the Lord. Bring them to the light of his gaze. He knows about them anyway and seek forgiveness for those things. Grace, mercy in the time of need. Paul, con- Paul concludes this, verse 25, as an encouragement to Timothy, other elders, all believers really, just like sins cannot remain forever hidden, neither can good works. He says, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. You know, some things done by us for God's glory are overlooked or misunderstood by other people. It's inevitable. Eventually, the truth about everything will be brought to light. Hebrews provides a wonderful promise for this. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Each of us, we overlook, we forget, we miss, we misinterpret. And I was trying to do good and it was taken as, as bad, but the Lord knows. Or I've been doing this, I've been serving these people and nobody seems to get it. Why has nobody thanked me for this? Right? There could be a pride, there could be a fear of man that's built into that. But, it's like, but remember, God knows. And God is faithful, graciously, amazingly, God is faithful to reward that which he has done in and through you to his body. Even if it never comes up in a public, thank you for this way that you have served, it will come up in front of all of creation. And this really should be a key aspect of our our motivation for loving and serving Christ and each other in our church family and beyond. Not that others will see it and give us credit, but that God sees. God sees. God sees your sin come to him for mercy. God sees your good works and is pleased with them. Whether elders or not, in all things, we must remember we are working to serve and please the Lord and not each other. I trust that it is and hope that it always will be a consuming passion of ours as a church to exalt Christ. That will be seen in what we preach and teach. That will be seen in how we interact with each other as spiritual family like we talked about last week. And it will be seen in how we treat those in leadership. So may God give us grace to lead and to to follow well for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your truth. May we submit ourselves well to it for your glory and for our good individually and corporately as a body, as a family, and as the ministry that would flow out from 
uh, Risen King to, to Hurricane, to Milton, to Barbersville, to Winfield and Eleanor and Scott Depot and uh, whatever other areas that I've missed. And then beyond that as well, if you would see fit to, to multiply uh, the reach of our ministry here to other, other communities, other states, other nations. Uh, but may we be guided by biblical principles and be, uh, again, passionate to exalt Christ in all things. It's not possible without you, but by your grace, by your spirit, it is possible with you. Um, so may you do this in our midst, I pray. Amen.